It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's been five months since Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. And in those early days, reports of protests in Russia filtered through to the outside world. But since then, the Kremlin has cracked down on dissent. The parliament passed legislation banning the spread of information critical of Russia's war or Russia's military. Violations could carry up to 15 years in prison. Overnight, for most independent journalists, both domestic and foreign, it had simply become too risky to stay in the country that many called home. My life splits in two parts, before February 24 and after. It is better for us to be free and to continue reporting instead of being in jail. I didn't want to do it. I like being a journalist. I don't want to leave my job. And I said, OK, I will step down, I will move to Paris, and uh, I can avoid the propaganda. But what was Russia like for the few that remained? You hear someone on the stairs at midnight or the lift creaking in the middle of the night, you think, is that for me? And when does it become too dangerous to stay? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, why our man in Moscow had to leave. Um, how do I introduce myself? I, <laughs> the Moscow I'm not the Moscow correspondent. I'm now foreign correspondent. That's a very good point. What is your title? Uh-huh. Yeah. For reasons that will become clear, joining me in the studio in London today is... Hello, my name is Mark Bennett. I'm the Times and the Sunday Times' is Moscow correspondent in exile. Mark, before you became the correspondent in exile, you had quite an extraordinary time in your last phase in, in Moscow. What happened that day? It was the anniversary of the assassination of um, Boris Nemtsov, who's a Russian opposition politician who was shot dead near the Kremlin. And every year on the anniversary of his death, people gather at the site where he was murdered. And this occasion, it coincided with the start of Russia's invasion. So people gather there to remember Nemtsov, but 
also as a very kind of small and low-key protest against the war. The police had been arresting people all day, but the numbers weren't massive. There was maybe 100, 200 people there. When I got there, people were laying flowers, and then police would basically arrest them and throw them into a police truck. Then at one point, I saw a woman and her husband hold up a tiny, tiny sign that said, no war. And the police jumped on them and dragged them off towards the truck. And so I decided to show them my accreditation and ask why they were being arrested, my journalist accreditation. Because sometimes I've noticed at protests that if you introduce yourself as a British journalist and ask why those people have been arrested in the kind of ensuing chaos that people can slip away. <laughs> so I was hoping that would happen this time, but they weren't. Gives them in, a lifeline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, the police weren't in the mood for that on that day. And uh, they just grabbed me as well and threw me into the police truck with orders to charge me with disobeying police orders. Oh, God. Yeah. How does that feel? Uh, well, um, I did think this is, this is probably the worst time to be arrested in Russia as a British journalist since, it, since well, for at least the last three decades, <laughs> since the end of the Cold War. The mood was okay in the police truck. There were around a dozen of us, I guess. And um, we were kept in the police truck for around three and a half hours, uh, four hours before we were driven further north to Moscow and taken to a police station there. What happened at the police station? I was separated from the protesters, who were all Russians, and um, taken into a, a small room where there were two men who, when I asked them who they were, introduced themselves as kind of from the foreign ministry. <laughs> I was like, kind, kind of. of. I was like, kind of from the foreign ministry. So I was like, so are you FSB? Which FSB is the um, state security service. And they're like, no, 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 no. But I wouldn't explain who they were. Spies uh, of some sort, you think? Uh, I think they're probably FSB, although I can't prove that. Their first question to me was, so what do you know about Russia? I was like, um, <laughs> I was like Moscow is the capital of Russia. And they were like, anything else? <laughs> I was like, yeah. And they were like, what? I was like, what do you mean? You want me to tell me everything I know about Russia? And they're like, yeah. I was like, I've been here for 25 years. So like, how, how much time do you have? <laughs> like, Forever. I was like, uh, Okay, so I suggested to kind of save time that we start from 2000 when Putin became president and just kind of concentrate on like the key political developments. So I gave them a kind of potted history of their own political history up until the 2020 referendum, which um, allowed Putin to stay in power basically for life. And then I finished with, and the ruling party in Russia is United Russia, and the head of its parliamentary fraction is Andrei Turchak. And then I was like, stop. He's not anymore, is he? And they looked at me and like, how do you know all this? <laughs> uh, and then they asked me the best question of all, which was like, okay, what do you think of Putin? Oh, like, what do you say to that when yeah. you're in a police station? Uh-huh. And I was thinking, this is, this is a good question. Um, so I was like, why do you even care what I think of Putin? And they're like, we're interested, tell us. And I was like, okay. So, I mean, obviously, can't tell them exactly what I think. <laughs> it's probably not going to help me. Uh, But on the other hand, then you want to lie and say something like, who's a very misunderstood man? (laughs) So I was thinking like, um, okay, so I need to be kind of uh, diplomatic about this. So in the end, I came up with, it must be very hard to effectively manage such a large country, which they were overjoyed with. Yeah, it's really hard. (laughs) So at this point, you're winning. You're winning in the police station. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then they took me to be processed for release by this um, kind of huge Russian cop who's straight from central casting. He was looking at my passport. (laughs) And the phone rang. You picked it up and went, what? I can't talk. I've got a citizen of London here. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Then he took me in to see the main police corp who said, do you have any complaints? I was like, well, if you let me go, I won't. And he said, okay, let him go. And they let me go. But it must have been about two o'clock in the morning and the lawyer came, drove me home when I was there. I didn't hear anything else from them. But it was still an experience. The people I was who were arrested alongside me weren't as lucky. I mean, they were taken to court, fined, and um, none of them got locked up. But um, a lot more of a disturbing experience for them. And for you, was that a real sign of the times? Yeah, I mean, the mood in, in Russia has darkened, is, is the only word for it. Um, in the days leading up to the invasion, many or most of or all... The foreign correspondents in Russia had been very skeptical that Putin was going to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I thought it was just that kind of saber rattling and that he was just trying to prove that he could attack Ukraine if he wanted. Looking back now, it was obvious that he was going to launch a full-scale invasion because you don't put 150,000 troops or however many it was on the border of your neighboring country if you don't intend to do something very serious. And that was what military analysts were saying at the time. But it seemed that that was a very cold-blooded analysis of the situation, whereas for anyone who lives in Russia, the idea of Russia attacking Kiev was just ludicrous, you know? It would be like France attacking London. You couldn't see it happening, you know? So that was, I think, why my judgment was clouded. Perhaps part of me just didn't want to accept that it would happen. Hindsight can be a wonderful thing, but leading up to the invasion, Russian officials told us time and time again that Russia didn't want a war. Your assessment from what you're saying is that Russia has no intention of invading Ukraine. Have you heard any Russian official, any Russian politician, any Russian deputy ever saying that Russia has intention to attack Ukraine? You will have well, none. That's a And even those closest to the Kremlin were taken aback. Here's foreign policy advisor Dr. Andrei Kortonov just a week after Putin sent his tanks over the border. For a long time, uh, I uh, thought that uh, a military operation was not uh, feasible, it was not plausible. You know, I'm trying to uh, continue doing what I'm doing, but of course I'm depressed. You know, all of us are depressed, and uh, I think that uh, it's, it's very embarrassing. You weren't the only one who was surprised by this. I mean, it felt like the whole of Russia mm-hmm. wasn't expecting this. Even people who were politically very close to the Kremlin didn't seem to think it was coming, and then suddenly mm-hmm. it happened. I mean, what was that like in those first few days? What was the shock like? Yeah, lots of people were shocked. I spoke to one person who was very knowledgeable. Um, I promise not to say his name or give any indication as to who he is, but um, he told me that he didn't have a clue what was happening, and, and, and he was just shocked. I spoke to an advisor who said that he told me that he'd advised the Kremlin not to go ahead with this because the consequences would be horrendous for Russia. He said they just ignored me. But the lead up to the invasion was was strange as well. I was in Taganrog, which is close to the separatist-held Donetsk People's Republic, basically chasing Russian tanks in the days up to the invasion, still not really believing that Putin would go ahead with it, but like talking to soldiers, like, do you think there's going to be a war? And they're like, don't know, we'll see. And then it became increasingly clear that something was going to happen when um, Putin first gave a bizarre kind of rambling history lesson about Ukraine on state television. 
признать независимость и суверенитет Донецкой Народной Республики и Луганской Народной Республики. Говорите, говорите, говорите прямо. Я поддержу предложение о э, признании. It was unprovoked, but this is what Russian President Vladimir Putin unleashed on Ukraine. Let's speak to Anthony Lloyd now, who's the Times' war correspondent. Good morning. It started here at about 5 a.m. started off with artillery pre-dawn. There's a continuing backdrop sound of artillery. There's been surface-to-surface missiles coming in. From that moment, mm-hmm. how difficult did it become to be a journalist in Russia? Well, it became dangerous when in early March the Russian parliament introduced a new law that made it a criminal offence punishable by 15 years, up to 15 years in a prison camp Mm. to spread fake news about the actions of the Russian army in Ukraine. The media watchdog in Russia was warning that media outlets in Russia can only use official sources to report about what they're calling a special operation. They also were telling critical media outlets that they can't call a war a war. But so at should. that point, it became not just uncomfortable to work in Russia, but actually dangerous. And then most Western media outlets extracted their correspondence for security concerns, basically. It was no longer possible technically, to report truthfully on what was happening in Ukraine. How did they sort of execute that about turn, where you go from one week saying, this is all Western propaganda, of Uh course we're not going to attack, to then attacking and telling people it's a good thing? Uh, They don't. Russian state propaganda works. It just like switches realities instantly. I mean, I can just turn on a new reality and beam into people's television. And it's just generally accepted by a lot of people. They don't try to justify anything they said in the past. It's like they have no memory. It's like yesterday said there was no war, today there is war. All light entertainment programming, well, all programming, apart from news and current affairs, was scrapped. So the main channel, Channel One, was having 16 hours a day of programming about the war. It must have had a chilling effect on Russian journalists too. It was an editorial meeting like none ever in the history of Echo Moskvi. The entire staff, many distraught, gathering to listen to their editor-in-chief announce that Russia's last independent radio station has been taken off the air. There was an example of somebody who came onto a set with a message and was then arrested for it. What you're about to see is by any standards a moment of extraordinary bravery. The program quickly cuts away to a recorded sequence. But this image of Marina Ovstyanakova running onto set with a sign urging Russians not to believe the lies being broadcast will be replayed again and again. All the Russian journalists left. All the independent opposition journalists, all the civil rights activists I know in Russia have left the country since early March. I now know people in Latvia, Lithuania, Georgia, Armenia, Argentina. Like People just fled everywhere. You know, so wow. Literally, when the law was approved, they packed a suitcase and left the country that night.
coming up. How did Mark end up in exile? And what was it like to experience the Iron Curtain descending? But first... I'm Christina Lamb. I'm Chief Foreign Correspondent of the Sunday Times, and I mostly cover conflict around the world. I particularly focus on what happens to women in war. And the reason that we can do this kind of reporting is thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. So please subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From that point in March when... Lots of the other reporters and lots of the the activists, people have left, people have Mm -hmm. fled. You're still there. Mm -hmm. What made you stay and Um, how did your life change? Well, the Times had arranged tickets for me and my family to leave, but it was quite stressful. I mean, I've lived there for 25 years. My wife is Russia and my daughter was born in Russia. So we were sitting there and we had about three hours before we had to leave for the airport. And we just thought... Mm. Well, my actual words were, fuck it, it's too stressful, let's stay. (laughs) (laughs) Really? I don't know if I could say that on air. (laughs) Oh, well, why not, if that's what you were thinking? We decided to stay and see what would happen, yeah. It was just Uh, too hard to to wrap up. Also, we would have had to leave the cat. Well, we wouldn't (laughs) want to do that. Uh But it was just too hard to wrap up your life and... Well, it wasn't clear when we could, could come back. If you leave, where would we go? It was quite hard with a teenage daughter just to leave and we didn't have anywhere to stay, I mean, for a long time in England. Also, it just felt like too kind of, um, like, it just felt too last minute. And um, I would have kind of Mm -hmm. liked to leave with a little bit of time to prepare for it and not in such a mad rush. As soon as I made the decision to stay, I remember this kind of like calm descended upon me. But then, like for the ne- over the next few days, when all my, f- all my colleagues and friends from my Western media had left, apart from the BBC, who stayed, and I'm still there now, and Sky. Are you starting to worry about? I this was stage? thinking. I was thinking. Well, if they're going to arrest anyone, they don't have many people to choose from now. <laughs> and um, it was those few days when I wasn't clear if they were if I was going to be arrested or what would happen. Mm. That was the only time in Russia that I've had that stereotypical, perhaps. Russian stroke Soviet experience where you hear someone on the stairs at midnight or the lift creaking in the middle of the night and you think is that for me you know <laughs> and that's kind of like, that, that's like... how you used to round up like dissidents in the Soviet Union things you had to come for them in the middle of the night the the footsteps on the stairs could be for me yeah I mean it was a, that was uncomfortable but then after around a week it became clearish that 
I wasn't going to be arrested and I should just be like very careful with my reporting, um, which was uncomfortable. I was mainly doing features at this point, so I had space to explain why the Kremlin had ordered journalists in Russia to refer to the war as a special military operation. Mm. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it wasn't... Um, it's kind of unclear how far you could push it as well. What was the tipping point? What made you think maybe it was time to get out? Well, I mean, <laughs> I was told to leave by the Times newspaper. They told me that they couldn't guarantee my safety anymore and they, they, want, they uh, asked me to leave as soon as possible, which I did with my fellow correspondent at the Times, Tom Parfit, and we left on the same day <laughs> with our cats. You have lived there for for years, for more than two decades. Mm-hmm. What was it like to to be leaving? Sad. <laughs> mm. Well, it was sad, but I mean, at the, on, on the other hand, I, I never planned to stay in Russia for that long anyway. And um, we'd always aimed to eventually move out of Russia at some point. So in a way, it kind of felt like it forced the issue. But I mean, I wish I just had like more time to, to leave and, um, and not in under kind of like such traumatic circumstances. Was it hard to leave? Was it hard to leave a country you've It wasn't hard in? to leave at that point. It wasn't hard to leave a country that started to brutally bomb Ukraine and, and kill civilians. It wasn't hard to leave Russia. It was hard to leave like um, my neighborhood, uh, the people I know who had stayed. I guess it just felt like I'm um, just kind of like such a waste, you know. Going back to your last few weeks in Russia, mm-hmm. how did normal life change in the weeks after the war broke out? I mean, you tell us a bit about, you know, was there a sense that the sanctions, for example, were starting to kick in? Did, did things look different? Lots, lots of big Western companies immediately pulled out of Russia or suspended their operations. So walking around shopping centers in the center of the city, it was strange to see all these luxury and foreign stores just shuttered. One shopping center I went to, it must have been like every third, fourth shop had been closed down. A mass exodus of major international companies is underway in Russia. The number of companies added to the list is growing by the hour. The ruble has tanked to record lows. Then obviously there was the McDonald's, the great closure of McDonald's, which was very symbolic when it, for Russians when it opened yeah. 30 years ago. The rush of Russians into Moscow's new McDonald's this morning was so great that even the company's largest restaurant couldn't really offer fast food. But Muscovites are well-practiced in the art of patience. That's gone. That's called um, tasty and that's it. It's been rebranded, but they don't have any fries because there's a shortage of potatoes it's in Russia. The Kremlin tried to push this Z symbol yeah, as kind of a show of support for the war. I live in a kind of fairly touristy area of Moscow. Well, it was touristy. <laughs> and all the souvenir shops started to sell like T-shirts with Zs on and cups with Zs on. But I didn't. In Moscow, at least, I didn't sense any kind of um, great enthusiasm for this Z symbol. Really? When Russia seized Crimea from Ukraine in 2014, 
there was an orange and black ribbon that became the symbol of um, Russia's covert military operation in, in Ukraine at the time. Mm. And they were everywhere. I mean, they were like taxi drivers had them, people would wear them on, on their clothes. Uh, but in the first couple of weeks, I saw one Z in the wild, as it were, uh, which was like some really half-hearted graffiti. And then I saw one guy in a bar with a Z t-shirt, and then you started to see them on police cars. But there wasn't the same kind of enthusiasm for the symbol. And then walking around the streets of central Moscow, aside from all the Western mm. shoulder swing clubs, you wouldn't kind of really have noticed any massive change in the atmosphere. A lot of people just try to ignore it, I think. With the national mood, mm-hmm. how has it changed since the invasion began? I mean, has it sort of has that pro-war sentiment solidified? It's very hard to say, but from conversations with friends who are still in Russia, it seems that there's a lot of support for the war. In some provinces in central Russia, mm. apparently there are a lot more Zeds there, for example, than in Moscow. But Moscow's always been like the opposition stronghold anyway. There are opinion polls, according to kind of independent and state independent polls, around like 70% of people support the war. But the majority of people would just refuse to answer the question. This pollster called Chronicles, which is made of opposition activists, and they call people and they say, well, your attitude's to the war. And they say to like 85%, people just hang up that they won't talk about it. Yeah. And there have been protests, but nothing large scale. There are a few attempts during the early days of the war. They were crushed, basically. Yeah, have those really died down now? Have they vanished? They haven't vanished. I mean, people are still going out on the streets with signs, but it's usually mm. just one, two people maximum. And then the police come, drag them away. There was a local councillor in Moscow who was jailed for seven years for um, saying at the start of a council meeting that civil society should do everything it can to stop the war and that it would be wrong to hold a children's art and dance festival whilst children are dying in Ukraine. Wow. Uh, And that's a councillor, somebody with a bit of political power. Yeah, well, he's an opposition councillor, but still, yeah. There's around 50 people facing charges that could see them jailed for up to 10, 15 years for spreading fake news or discrediting the Russian army. So that's enough to make people scared. Alongside the crackdown on dissent, the propaganda machine is in full swing. Children right now, they're having special lessons about the war and uh, being forced. Really? Yeah. What does that consist of? Well, it's up to individual teachers. Basically, they've given guidelines, but they're told to tell the children that Russia had no choice to invade, it's protecting Ukrainians from Nazis. Although some of the teachers seem to be confused, one of the lessons was leaked, and the teacher told the children that the roots of the war dated from 2008, when President Zelensky banned the Russian language. Zelensky's been in power since 2019. (laughs) So so she's a bit confused. And children have also been forced to sing this song called Uncle Vova, We Are With You, which contains the line, If Uncle Vova calls us into the last battle, then we are with you. Uncle Vova in Russian is short for Vladimir. And a life immersed in what Uncle Vova wants you to believe clearly has an effect. The day before I left, I went to see a woman in her late 60s. told her that I was leaving and I deliberately didn't want to discuss the war in Ukraine with her. And she's like a very mild, mild-mannered woman. And I'd never heard her raise a voice in all the years I'd known her. But as soon as 
who did kind of stray onto the topic of Ukraine. She just, her eyes just like flashed with like hatred. And um, it was like one of those horror films, you know, where the mild-mannered old woman turns into a demon in a flash. And you think, did I see that or something? You know? And then wow. I was like, let's not talk about it. And she went, you just see her like shut off on it. She just returned to it like this uh, kind of nice woman. Do you worry about what happens when all the opposition activists, when all the independent journalists leave a country? Mm, yeah. I mean, it's essentially a brain drain. I mean, it's not just opposition journalists. It's like IT workers, it's academics. For a lot of people, they'd been considering leaving for years, but it was difficult to make that step. And then when the first few people started leaving, they're like, okay, let's leave as well. Some people have come back. It's very difficult to survive right now as a Russian in, in, in the West. You have like Russian opposition activists who have been like fighting against Putin for years. They flee Russia. And their bank cards no longer work in the West, so they can't access their oh. bank accounts. But it's essentially a collective punishment. As well as making the situation so hostile that journalists left the country in droves, Russia also released its own list banning 29 UK journalists last month. It includes the Times defence editor, Larissa Brown, and our editor-in-chief, John Witherow. And as you left... Did it feel a bit like you know, the Iron Curtain was sort of coming down behind you? Yeah, totally. I don't know when I'll be going back. I'm pretty sure I will go back. But um, yeah. when exactly that might be, I don't know right now. Have you resigned yourself to the fact that it's more likely to be years than months? Yeah, I think so. I'm quite certain now that I'm not going to be living in Russia by the end of this year, probably not by the end of next year. Um, and then it becomes the longer I stay here. It's kind of like, do I even want to go back? You know, it's like, mm. I haven't, haven't answered that question yet. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, foreign correspondent and Moscow correspondent in exile, at The Times and The Sunday Times, Mark Bennett. You can find all of Mark's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Sam Chantarasak. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM. 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.